this is John Pielli in the Past Ball Show. I'm uh, joined right now by uh, longtime broadcaster Dave Sims. Dave, how you doing, buddy? Doing well, John. How are you? Yeah, pretty good, man. Like I said, thanks for having a couple minutes. On, um, listen, man, you started out, you were writing for the New York Daily News, man, and you ended up getting into sportscasts. And tell us a little bit about how, how that started and how you made the transition. Well, uh, I got an internship when I was in, uh, in college. I worked at the Philadelphia Inquirer for a couple of years, uh, sophomore, junior year, senior year. Uh, after graduation, I got hooked up with them. And then um, I wound up at the New York Daily News, and then uh, when the whole cable explosion happened, they were, were looking for experienced people and that covered you know, various fields. And I was working with, uh, I was uh, offered an opportunity to work on TV skills by a gentleman who was an anchor over, uh, who, I mean, who was an agent. And uh, one thing led to another, and sent some tapes out, and had a job at Satellite News Channel, and that's how the broadcasting career started. I didn't really get into play-by-play full-time on an extended basis until 1990 when I was at the band and did Temple University football, and that led to some stuff at ESPN, and, which led to where I am today. So it's uh, oh, a yeah, chain of events happening as, as they do in life. It's worked out quite nicely, thank you. No, it definitely has, man. Now, you, you actually had the opportunity for a little while to work for WFAN, kind of towards the beginning. Now, uh, tell us a little bit about how it was back then, when this, the radio station first started and how everything happened with that. Well, I wasn't there at the beginning. I was at WNBC competing against them okay. uh, from 88 to 86 to 88, and then while well, I was at FAN at 89. And you know, by that time, the station was pretty much on its feet. They had started, with, they started July of 87. I got to work with Eddie Coleman, who was a great guy, great pro, and yeah, we did we did the midday show for from '89 September to uh, February of '93. It was good. Hey, now, now, as you're in the broadcasting now, do you have a particular passion? Like, I know you do baseball for the Mariners right now, but is there anything you prefer doing with play-by-play? You know, like football or any other sport or like that? I prefer working, and uh, I'm lucky enough to do. You know, lucky enough to be doing Major League Baseball, NFL, and Major College Hoops. Don't do College Hoops on radio on TV anymore. Do it on radio during the tournament, a few games here and there during the season. Yeah, that's cool, man. Now, now, tell us a little bit about uh, you know how you got into the thing with the Mariners, man. You, you um, yeah, was it something you were just approached on? You had a chance to, uh, you know, I believe uh, what Dave Newhouse was there before he passed away, right? Well, Dave Newhouse was there from one time. He was there from the day one, and. Uh, after, I want to say after Halloween 06, I got a call, and uh, Ron Fairley was, was retiring, and, and I was told, hey, and I had made some connections, it's, uh, life's all about connections, and I had made some connections with people out there over the years, and told them if you ever had an opening or anything happen, I'd be interested, and the guy remembered, and who I'd known for a while, and sent a tape out, and, and won, won that, basically won a national search, so...
Yeah, coming back at Radio Network, of course, is John Pielli. I'm going to finish up the show today, man. I'm glad that uh, you guys are able to tune in, listen to a little bit of pass ball on some coverage today on a Saturday afternoon. Today, of course, being February the 2nd. You know, I was getting into, uh, I did talk a little bit about the second base position. And, you know, unfortunately, when you when it comes to the baseball, comes to the baseball Hall of Fame, you know, second shortstop, offensive numbers, kind of stand out a little more than they do for other positions and you know the fact that something as a second baseman let's like let's say a Joe Morgan who would have been a Hall of Famer no matter where he played on the diamond but moves on and you end up getting guys in a Hall of Fame such as a Ryan Sandberg such as um Pro Alomar they were they were very good players and and both I think you can make the case that they belong in a Hall of Fame if they played in another position on a diamond, if they were first baseman, if they were outfielders, if they played third base, and you put the Hall of Famers that made it into the Hall at those other different positions, they may not get that they've gotten from the baseball writers. And one guy that stands out to me, he ends up in this conversation because of the argument that I just said that second basemen aren't known as being a position, they're not known for the big numbers, you know, that whole thing is Bobby Gritch did a phenomenal job for the Baltimore Orioles in the 1970s and then and was probably not the same player when he was with the California Angels. And Bobby Gritch went out there and had that unfortunate accident where he was lifting a refrigerator and ends up, I, I think, hurting his back or his leg. or was never the same. But some of the numbers that he put up through the course of his career, he played in 2008 games, 6,890 at-bats, over 1,000 runs scored, 1,833 hits, 47 triples, 224 homers, 864 RBIs, a 266 hitter, 371, 424 slugging for a, nine, a 794 OPS. That's not Hall of Fame numbers. But the point that I was making when I was writing about this is that if you look at the other players, and Morgan is an example, I'm going to use Ryan Sandberg as an example, Rogers Hornsby is the greatest second base of all time, and it's it's uh, it's an unfair comparison to make because of the numbers that he put up in his career. But I'll I'll throw him I'll throw him out there real quick. 
But you got Sandberg, Morgan, to be eligible for the Hall of Fame this coming season, and of course Roberto Alomar. So, you know, being considered, Gritch's numbers holds a little bit of water when com- when in comparison to him. You know, the only player that had a you know Ryan Sandberg had less of an on base percentage as, as Bobby Gritch did in the course of his career. You know, when it came to home runs, Roberto Alomar only hit 210. And remember, Roberto Alomar was known as the guy with home runs a couple times. So Gritch had more home runs than him. But to me, I mean, you know, Jeff Kent, 2,400, Morgan, 2,517, Sandberg, 2,386. And, of course, Alomar, 2,724. Obviously, when you're lo- if you want to look at the stats of the amount of hits, I think that's when you kind of weigh your, your thoughts away from Bobby Gritch as being, you know, as dominant of a player as he was. And my, I guess my question would be, what could have been out of Bobby Gritch? Let's say he didn't have that accident. He was on pace to put up some very good numbers. He went out there, he would hit, he hit, had some 30, 100. He was a very good part of the 1979 uh, California Angels team that made it to the postseason for the first time. And, of course, they did it again in 82 and 86. And... You know, here's a guy that unfortunately just that he deserves. He's not a Hall of Famer. I'm not going to try to be the one that's going to try to tell that silly story about how the guy belongs in the Hall of Fame because the truth is he probably. But that being said, I think he does deserve some credit because he was a he was a very good player for a long time. Impact on those Baltimore Oriole teams in the '70s, you know, is is really is really is, is really special. I mean, those teams probably would not have been able to make the runs into the postseason in 72 and 73 when they won the AL East. They probably would not have had that opportunity if it wasn't for a guy like Bobby Gritch. And I think I think that has to be thought about. Uh, I, I got into a little bit, talk about it a little bit on Thursday, and then I kind of want to finish up this discussion because I think it's pretty important to try to figure out going. You, you know, you get into spring training, you get ready to start the season, and obviously all the predictions are going to get there. You're going to get involved. What team you think is the best? What team has the best of this? What's, you know, best attributes are here or there? MLB Network, of course, the job um, in, in, you know, previewing who are the best players right now, the 10 best at every position. And what we get into is the, the managers. And, you know, I, I did a list last year and I actually thought it turned out pretty good. And I, I'm happy to have over 20,000 people read my article in regards to uh, ranking the current MLB managers 1 to 30. And I was, you know, going into the 2012 season. So thanks a lot for everybody that took a second or two to read that list. And I ended up doing it again this year. And it came up a little bit different than it in the past year, in, in last year. Because last year, I, I kind of gave the title to Joe Madden as the number one manager in the game. And I don't necessarily think that he fell off. Going from uh, 2011 to 2000, I just think he he was he was just he was just uh, he he's a great manager, but just in my opinion isn't number one anymore. Now, that changes a little bit when you look at a guy like Jim Leland who gets himself to the World Series again. That's two pennants with the Detroit Tigers, you know, you, you with the Florida Marlins. You got the three straight NL East titles with the Pittsburgh Pirates, and really in, in the times where Tony Larusa is no longer in the game, where Bobby Cox is no longer. He really has taken over as the lead guy, the lead legend time manager, guy who will probably be in the Hall of Fame once he's finished. And that's why I think he's a guy now. He took the Tiger team that, let's be honest, underachieved for a very good portion of the 2000 season. Got them going at the right time, led by the Triple Crown MVP, Miguel Cabrera, 
themselves into the playoffs. They won the American League Central and then rolled themselves through the postseason until they ran into that uh, unflappable group of players in San Francisco. But he deserves, he, he deserves credit because he is the guy in charge of your veteran team. You know, if there's if there's one guy that you want running a veteran team and you could pick out managers, it will be Jim Leland. And that's why he ranks number one on my list. Number two, right behind him, and, and probably behind, was a guy that did a phenomenal job last year, and that's Buck Showalter. And Buck Showalter, if I'm on my list from last year, he actually ranked, I think, number six. And that, and that was a guy that's in charge of a – that was projected to go nowhere. You know, let's be honest. I know we so we were so quick to forget about where teams from one year to the next. But I think you're looking at a spot with Buck Showalter, who got the Baltimore Orioles job, was considered one of the best managers in baseball. He's a guy that built the Yankees teams of the late 90s and unfortunately was fired after the 95 season before Joe Torre. And he had that team ready to go. He also did the same when he went to Arizona. He went to the Arizona Diamondbacks, got that team ready. The trade for Kurt Schilling was a big difference in that team winning the World Series in 2001. But Buck Showalter had a good hand in it. And I know, I, I think if you're talking about his run in, you know, when he was the manager there, I think you could probably say um, it's between him and Ron Washington as far as getting that team going and getting that team into the position that they are, have been over the last three seasons. The two straight ALE, ALE, I'm sorry, AL pennants and then being, you know, very good up until the very end. I think you could kind of split that between Buck Showalter, who had players like Ian Kinsler and Michael Yip at the time, and, of course, what Washington has done. And Nolan Ryan, I think, needs to be given some consideration as far as what him and John Daniels has done for that organization. So, to me, that's the effort. I wouldn't be the first to say Buck built the Texas Rangers of what they are right now, but hand in it. And it, you kind of saw the team, once he took over that Baltimore team in 2011, they got better. They got a little bit better. It seemed accountability there. And the younger players that were there got better. Yeah, they would have expected. And I certainly wasn't one of them that, that thought that the Baltimore Orioles were going to go out there and win 93 games in 2012. But part of it, I would say, a good 80% of the reason why they were what they were was because of and that's why he makes a jump. Even if he was manager number 20 on my list last year, he would definitely be in the top three. Right now, I have him at number two. Madden down to number three, but there's nothing to be ashamed of. I think Joe Madden is a guy that, especially if I had a young team, if I had the Tampa Bay Rays consistently losing their stars every year, is watching James Shields pitch for Kansas City and B.J. Upton play for the Atlanta Braves. You know, Joe Madden's the guy. You know, whether it's Desmond Jennings or Will Myers in the outfield, whether starting rotation has David Price and Matt Moore and Hellickson and um, you know Jeff Neiman and all those guys, I, I want a guy that ha has the the eye ear of a younger player. And if there's there's not a team in Major League Baseball, particularly the ones that are that wouldn't want Joe Madden in charge of that team. And I'm just going to finish off here. We'll talk about the top five before we wrap things up. Um, the, the other two guys in my top five were not even in the top 10. They were not even in the top 15 in my discussion last year. And in my opinion, I didn't think those guys had just proven enough. And that's really what I thought it was. One, in Davey Jones, a phenomenal track record of winning wherever he has been. And the other was, of course, Bruce Bochy, who ends up winning another World Series with the Giants. 
coming in the last season, my issue with Bochi was the fact that he was kind of, if he was a major league player at this point, you would call him a composite. You would call him a guy that has a lot of wins in a regular season because he's just been there for a while. He took over to San Diego, managed them forever. And since, was it, 2003, he's been in charge of the San Francisco Giants. And he's there, and he, he has the job consistently. There's other managers that had more success in shorter periods of time, but just didn't get the chance to match the, the better balance of 20 years. So I looked at Bruce Bochy, 2011, as a guy who was kind of a compiler. Yes, he got the World Series championship in 2010 with the Giants, and he took the San Diego Padres to the, the World Series against the Yankees. But to me, he didn't dominate. He didn't make his teams that much better. He had as many 90 loss seasons as he had, I'm sorry, 90 win seasons. And those are all things that have to be looked at when you're looking at you know, a manager. You, know, you look at what the team is, how much they improve their team, and then the simple things like win-loss record, short period of time and a long period of time. And that's where I felt Bruce Bochy fell short. Now, where does he gain you know, from being number 17 on my list last year to number four on my list this season? Where does he move that much? Number one, the World Series this past season. Now he's, he's, he's a two-time World Series champion manager. And what impressed me the most about what Bruce Bochy did this season was the fact that he did it this year with a totally different roster in 2010. And I just don't think that enough clongs to a guy that, man that manages a team like that. Because if you look at the guys that contributed on a 2010 team, Aubrey Huff, you got Edgar Renteria, Jonathan Sanchez, Brian Wilson. These are all players that had nothing with the 2012 team. 2012 team had guys like Marco Scudero, Angel Pagan, Barry Zito. And Zito was on the 2010 team, but he had nothing to do with the 2010 team. He had as much to do with the 2000 as Aubrey Huff had with the 2012 team. So he was able to get production out of different types of players. And you throw that into the fact that he now has his second World Series three years and his third NL pennant, he's a top five manager now. And the other guy, Davey Johnson, and listen, Davey's a guy that I have, I've been a huge fan of, obviously. You know, being a longtime Mets fan, he's the best manager the New York Mets have ever had in the history of their franchise. And, you know, I still think it was a terrible move when they fired him, you know, it, you know in the 1990 season. I thought it was a terrible move. You know, how do you fire a guy that had all those winning seasons and has brought some prominence back to an organization terrible since its inception? But, you know, that being said, Davey Johnson ended up going to Cincinnati and to Baltimore. Ended up winning division titles and getting to the postseason with those teams. And, you know, he, and my, my and I ranked Davey Johnson number 19 on my list last season. And here's the reason. It looked like the game. You know, you look at his run, his couple years with the Los Angeles Dodgers, and his ability to get through to the player on those teams didn't seem like it was on the same page as it was in 1985, maybe even 1995. And I just thought it was going to be a tough roundabout, a tough, a tough time for the Washington Nationals. And listen, the Washington Nationals are blessed with a ridiculous amount of talent. And I think that has you know, the fact that the team's just good. You could put you or me behind a bench and end up getting some wins on that team. But he went out there, and a year earlier, 
than anticipated. 198 games, ran rough shot on the East, and had a very good chance to make a serious run in the postseason. And that's commendable. And I obviously to this day do not agree with what happened in, Steve, in the Steven Strasburg situation and shutting him down. But you saw a little bit of a changing with times with Davey Johnson that you didn't see before. And I always make the comparison to 1984 when Dwight Gooden was pitching for the Mets and had that phenomenal spring training. And you looked at him, you're like, dude, this guy's going to be a star. And Frank Cashin calls Davey Johnson into the office and says, listen, we're going to send Doc down. Extra year of eligibility, we'll bring him up maybe in May. But I don't think it's time. And David Johnson looks him in the eye. And if, you, if, if he isn't on my opening day roster, I'm walking. And he basically put it all on the line and said, listen, this is the way it's going to be. Either Dwight Gooden's on my team or I'm not going to be here. Sure enough, Cash and backed him on it. Gooden ended up winning the rookie of the year in 1984. The 24-4 season winning the same five. You know, and the rest was history, obviously. You know, the, the immediate history was very good, and obviously the latter history. But, you know, it shows the big difference because with the Strasburg situation, it was a similar thing. Davey Johnson could go up in the office and say, listen, I'm not going for it. I want, him, I want to use him in the postseason. You know, he's my best pitcher. And Mike Rizzo, very steadfast, very serious in his, in his point and what he was going to do and what he was going to say and the way he was going to keep it. Davey Johnson backed down. Davey Johnson took a step back and said, listen, I may not agree with this, but I'm going with it because that's what the organization wants here. It showed me that Davey Johnson has changed with the times very, very differently than what I thought from 2000 to 2012. And that's why I got him as a top five manager now. I think you put that, the warm that had was him changing with the times. And to me, he changed with the times. So you, know, you put back the fact that he was in New York with the Mets. He had winners in Cincinnati, he had winners in Baltimore, and he's now one in Washington too. Davey Johnson is a top five manager. Uh, in AAA that year, um, 
maybe that's the reason why or anything. You know, it's, it just all happened for a reason, and, and that's it. Uh, I'm pretty fortunate that uh, that I was up there for what I was. Yeah, no question, man. I'll tell you, it had to be a little bit frustrating, but, you know, it looks like it wasn't for a lack of effort, man. A lot of the numbers that you had over your last, like, five or so seasons, you know, pitching between independent ball and, uh, you know, and, and the minor leagues, you know, are nothing to be ashamed of. But, uh, listen, thanks a lot, John. I appreciate you having you on the show. Hopefully I can speak to you sometime in the near future. You got it, John. Anytime. Plus, I want to thank everybody for having some time listening to me today. Uh, we'll definitely get this show up on the website and, uh, you know, apologize for what happened last Thursday. But don't forget to tune in next Thursday, 6 p.m. on the Past Ball Show. We'll definitely get into some more stuff going on in the majors. Uh, definitely have some, always do. I do want to thank Joey Gathright, uh, Major League Outfielder, and wish him the best. Hopefully he ends up back in the season. But um, we're going to wrap things up here, man. Thanks a lot for having some time. We'll talk to you next right here on the MTR Radio Network. Past Ball Show, brought to you by John.com. Keep the lights